Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist in private practice based in London. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dallas Dannery, who's Associate Professor of History at Bowdoin College in the USA. He's the author of Seeing and Being Seen in the Later Medieval World, Optics, Theology and Religious Life, and the co-editor of another book, Uncertain Knowledge, Skepticism, Relativism and Doubt in the Middle Ages. But we're interviewing Dallas today because of a new book he's just published called The Devil Wins, a history of lying from the Garden of Eden to the Enlightenment. And uh, this book is published by Princeton University Press. Basically, it's a review of the history of our personal relationship with lying between a couple of key moments in history. Um, dating from um, the, around the 4th century, I think, till around uh, the beginning, beginning of the Enlightenment, around the 18th, 17th and 18th centuries. Um, but let me start by asking you, Dallas, why is, is this historical analysis of lying and attitudes to lying uh, between these particularly key moments of history that you've picked, why is that understanding so important to us today? So I, I guess there's two uh, responses uh, to that. Sort of the academic response is I think historians have an incorrect understanding of attitudes about lying over the course of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance uh, and the scientific revolution. Um, and so that those are academic sorts of reasons. I, th I think from our own perspective today, um, it's important to sort of understand the cultural shifts and the transformations and ideas that sort of shape how we think now about different sorts of ethical ideas, uh, in part to make us more aware of why we think we do about what we think is right and wrong and good and bad behavior. And I think one of the theses you're advocating is the notion that we seem to become rather relaxed about lying we almost see it as a kind of necessity, a kind of necessary evil in everyday social life. Yet, back in history, it was taken much more seriously and was at the cornerstone of the ethical or moral life or, or belief in God. Yeah, so the, the book um, looks at um, how it is that people began to think that lies were actually necessary for society to work. Um, and that if we didn't lie, uh, society might actually fall apart. And the significance of these kinds of discussions for people living in the Middle Ages or the Enlightenment um, had to do with uh, their religious beliefs and the sort of religious uh, understanding that lying had for them, beginning with the Garden of Eden and the story in the Garden of Eden and how that sort of affected and transformed the, the very world we live in. And we're going to get to the Garden of Eden story because, again, your analysis of what happens in the Garden of Eden is um, very impressive. And I, I challenge anyone not to read your chapter on the Garden of Eden and not to dominate any dinner party from that point onwards in terms of <laughs> explaining the true significance of this cornerstone story in the Bible. But before we get to that, the devil is in your title of your book, and the devil, you believe, is intrinsic in the notion of lying. And a lot of people wouldn't think of, of lying and the devil as so closely linked. Could you explain that link? Sure. The, it's most clearly made in the Gospels where Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. And when, and when theologians read that, they would then go back to the story of the Garden of Eden because everything in this history goes back to the Garden of Eden. Um, and it's the serpent talking to Eve who tells the first lie. 
uh, he lies to Eve, and so they assumed it had to be this, the devil disguised as a, as a serpent. Um, the significance of this for lying and for the world is that um, because the devil tells this lie to Eve, um, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the world becomes uh, a place with death and misery and pain and suffering, and so when people think about lying, uh, and whether it's okay to lie or not, it's it's never just this ethical decision. Would it be a good or bad thing to do? It it instead it involves potentially doing what the devil himself did to ruin the world. And so, when theologians and courtiers and all sorts of people think about the moral implications of lying, uh, it always goes back to you can be with God or you can be with the devil, uh, and the, because the devil was the one who told the first lie. And this story, this arc of this incredible story that begins with this first lie, and then the descent of man, original sin, gets closed again with Jesus and the crucifixion of the cross. And there's a, there's a possibility of a lie there, um, because the devil is deceived. Um, God lies, as it were, in, in your book, and doesn't doesn't declare his hand in in having um, his son on earth. So so there's a lie at the beginning of the story and a possible lie at the end. Is that right? Yeah. One of so so one of the problems uh, people faced when they thought about whether it was okay to lie or not, and the and the function that lie plays lies play in the world, is that they read the Bible. And, and believed the Bible and thought the Bible told us about the history of the world and it, and it told us about God because God interacts with human beings in the Bible. And, and one of the problems is in the Bible it seems as if God sometimes lies. Uh, he might lie to Abraham when he tells Abraham that he has to go sacrifice Isaac. Uh, he certainly tells people to be li tells the demons to be liars in the mouths of the prophets. Uh, in the book of Kings uh, to, uh, to King Ahab. And worst of all, and this is what you were just alluding to, it seems as if Jesus and Christ, the incarnation of God itself, if it's not a lie, is at least a deception. And the question they'd have to ask themselves is, so why does Christ, when he comes to earth, have to disguise himself uh, as the man Jesus? Because right? this is the narrative of the Bible. It's not just... Christ walking around is God. It's Christ disguised as, as Jesus. And the way theologians made sense of this, uh, from the time of Augustine, so 400 AD, say, maybe even a little earlier, was that Christ needed to disguise himself as a human being to deceive the devil, so that the devil would think that this man, Jesus, is so wonderful, so sinless, that if he could could have Jesus, he would relinquish his control of all the rest of humanity. Um, and so the crucifixion in this story, uh, Augustine refers to it as the devil's mousetrap, right, where Christ's flesh uh, plays the bait that's in the trap that will get the devil. And the idea is that the devil unfairly and unjustly crucifies Christ disguised as Jesus and thereby relinquishes his hold on mankind. And so the entire story of human salvation depends on this 33-year trick uh, that Jesus plays on, on the devil. So deception, um, your, your argument, 
uh, is, go, you know, goes to the heart of the biblical story. So let's go to the beginning uh, with the Garden of Eden, and you start chapter one, the devil, in your book, with this wonderful, wonderful sentence. Um, it took God six days to create the world, and the devil two sentences to undo it. So what do you mean by that? So we all know the story uh, that's told in the first uh, chapter of Genesis uh, about God's creation of the world in six days. Uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, the devil approaches Eve and he asks her a question. He says, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Right Now that's actually not what God had said. God had said you can eat from any tree of the garden, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. So the devil misstates God's command. And Eve responds to the devil, and she says, no, God said we could eat from any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if we eat or even touch it, we might die. So she then rephrases God's command wrong, and then the devil responds, no, you won't die. So in two sentences, he has totally befuddled Eve, two lies as theologians understood it, because he, 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 he misstated God's words. And with those two sentences, Eve is deceived. She, dis, she tricks or convinces Adam to eat the apple. And when God finds out they've disobeyed, all of paradise is undone. They're exiled from paradise. The world is no longer bountiful and produces everything they need, but they're going to have to work and sweat and suffer, and Eve's going to have labor pains when she has children. So the entire world of paradise is undone by those two sentences the devil tells. And, and given that huge significance, what do you think the people who, who authored the Bible or, 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 or the thinking behind the story, what was it, trying, what was it meant to tell us? What was it meant to say to us? You mean among the people who originally wrote it? Or uh, the, the underlying message that theologians are trying to get well, to so me meaning? Yeah, the, the meaning theologians took from it is that every lie is a sin, right? And every sin you know, can take the form of a lie, and, and that the worst thing we can possibly do is disobey God to misinterpret his word, right? So when, when theologians read it, they always read, um, when they, they read it thinking about the nature of lies and ethical behavior, they always understood it within this deeply religious context in which human salvation itself was sort of at stake when we talked about lies. So um, the, the layers in the story, because you, you go into it in great detail, are fascinating, aren't they? There was, what was God's intention? What did he actually say to Adam? Then what did Adam say to Eve? And then what did the devil say to Eve? And, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's an incredibly layered story as you get into it. It seems outwardly simple, but incredibly complex. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 one of, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to read how people interpreted it over the years, because the story itself is two paragraphs. It's really short. And none of the details that you really need are included. 
And so what you find, you read Augustine in the 5th century, you read Anselm in the 12th century, you read all these 13th, 14th century theologians, John Calvin, uh, John Milton event, uh, eventually. You, they, it gives them an incredibly fertile ground um, to sort of figure out things for themselves. Uh, and so it's just a fascinating uh, story at, with the possibilities it has of being rewritten to sort of meet contemporary needs. So um, you, you, you start off with that because you're kind of saying this notion of deception and the hard the hardness of deception, uh, it being like a really bad thing linked to the devil's work, gets transformed over the ages so that we become much more relaxed about deception. And you, you trace the arc of that gradual relaxation of you. I know that's really the task of the book, but could you say a little bit about that arc, about what's happening? Yeah, so there's there's always sort of two radically different positions. And so, so the book sets itself a single question, is it ever acceptable to lie? And it looks at how different kinds of people answered the question. Um, and so there's a, a sort of theological response to that question, which is you should never lie because every lie is a sin. They have different reasons for thinking this, but but essentially it's even even if you're lying to save someone's life, um, you're still committing a sin. At the same time, uh, there's a different line of thinking uh, that goes all the way back to the time of Augustine as well. Uh, Jerome, uh, who's famous for having uh, translated the Bible into Latin, um, disagreed with Augustine on this. And, and there's faint disagreements for quite a while, which is we live in a very complex, fallen, evil, deceptive world. Uh, and so sometimes when, when you're surrounded by liars and deceivers and death and people are out to get you, sometimes you actually have to, you know, fight fire with fire, right? You have to actually lie to the liars. So there's this undercurrent throughout the whole tradition that's often ignored of, of people who thought, given the nature of the world, we have no choice but to lie. Um, what you're referring to uh, and the task of the book is how that current becomes more and more prominent. And, and it seems to become more prominent as um, states, uh, nations, uh, kingdoms begin to sort of solidify and you have a whole class of sort of bureaucrats and courtiers who are working in, in very dangerous political situations um, as bureaucrats or envoys and they need to sort of figure their place in the world and so beginning around the 12th century uh, we see a steady line of thinking which is sometimes you have to lie sometimes a lie might even be virtuous uh, and this continues until sort of the cases in which you need to lie sort of keep expanding. So by the time we get to the Renaissance, people will say things like, well, if you're at an important social engagement and there's someone you hate but you're introduced to them, you say something very nice to them even though you don't mean it. You flatter them. You've lied to them, but think what would happen if you didn't lie to them. You could, you could start an international incident. You could be kicked out of the court. Who knows? And so gradually they begin to think, wow, if we didn't lie to each other, we might be at each other's throats constantly, right? There's no other way to get on in the world. So there was this gradual sort of realization, perhaps, that if we didn't lie, 
society simply couldn't function. And this really seems to sort of hit its peak in the Renaissance and into the 17th century. But you seem to be drawing a very interesting link between this um, gradual acceptance that to get on in life, okay, you're going to have to tell a few lies um, because of the politics of life and job interviews and, and stuff like that. Uh, and you draw a link between that and the gradual retreat from religion to everyday life. And, and maybe 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, God was everywhere. God was in the weather. God was in the hurricanes. <laughs> God, God was in the trees. And God, you felt God was in your head and knew uh, when you told a lie. And gradually as science came to explain stuff around us and we didn't feel God was, was ever present and God gradually treated, it seems to coincide, if I read you correctly, with an increasing relaxation or allowance of lies as a necessity part of social life. Is, is that kind of what you're, you're saying? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, what, what seems to happen uh, is as Renaissance courtiers uh, and people hanging out in the salons in Paris in the 17th century um, consider just what it takes to get on in the world. You know, how do you how do you survive this world? They begin to realize that sort of lies are just sort of a natural a natural part of what we need to do. Now there are some people who find this terrible and yet admit it's necessary, and there's other people who just sort of think, oh well, this is sort of necessary. So by the time we get to the 1700s. Uh, there are people like the Englishman Bernard Mandeville, uh, who writes this famous book called The Fable of the Bees, um, who essentially argues that if we didn't, our lies actually are what makes society work, right? Um, I am self-centered. If I let you know how self-centered I was, I couldn't get anything from you I want, so I hide my self-centeredness, I pretend to be a good person, and, and you like me, and suddenly we work together, and we both get what we want. And so there's this way in which lies are actually the hidden hand that makes society work. All of this comes to its sort of culmination in uh, the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right, the, the French Enlightenment thinker, who for the first time, so far as I can tell, offers a non-religious explanation uh, for why we lie. And that becomes an important moment, I think, in the history of lying, because it's the moment at which lying is no longer, at least for some people, and then more and more over time, it's no longer a religious problem. It's just a natural problem. So in that sense, it, it's not so much that God vanishes, it's God becomes less important, perhaps irrelevant even, uh, to the problem of lying itself. So let's talk a bit about that, because I, I, you do highlight that as an incredibly important moment in the history of, of thought, or at least Western thought. So Rousseau's argument, as I understand it from your book, is that for society to function, as society gets more complicated, as people have to work together and get on with each other, lies aren't just a kind of like um, thing that sometimes happens, they're actually essential for society to function. They're actually the foundation stone of society because as interests begin to diverge to ensure that people can function and accommodate each other, deception uh, becomes at the center of any kind of social cohesion. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's what you've described really is sort of the description of 
people like uh, Pierre Nicole, who was um, a French thinker from the 17th century, Bernard Mandeville from the early 18th century. Rousseau's position actually is just a little bit different. For Rousseau, he, he, he argues that human beings used to sort of live alone and we just like hook up for the night occasionally. He has this insane vision of what primitive human life was like. And at some point we start to live in society. And as soon as we started to live in societies, you know, I would look at you and I would say, wow, you know, that guy is famous. Uh, he's well known. He's respected. I wish I was like that. So I start to pretend to have qualities that you have so that people will think of me like they do of you. So society, according to Rousseau, naturally transforms us into liars because we pretend to have qualities we don't have. So what's really interesting for Rousseau is he doesn't need the Garden of Eden. He doesn't need the devil or the serpent, no tree of knowledge. All he needs are a couple people living in a society and one person looks at the other and he thinks to himself, wow, that guy's good looking and the women like him. If I do something or make up for that, then the women will like me too, right? And, and so lying becomes a natural problem as opposed to a religious problem. And I suppose, I, I, I'm not sure if you state this explicitly, I suppose people observe that the liars get on and the people who are very observant of God's truth don't seem to do so well. And maybe that's another reason why lies start to become common currency. Well, it's entirely possible. I, I, I don't have a good answer for whether lying really works for people or not. Uh, I'm more a historian than an ethicist. And, and historically, and the way people wrote about it historically, there was certainly a huge line of thinkers who believed, and increasingly so over time, uh, that lying was necessary to survive in the world. Currently, there are a number of biologists and psychologists um, and others um, who are coming up with arguments about whether deception is sort of woven into our genetic nature uh, and whether it you know, plays a, a fundamental role sort of from a scientific you know, point of view. What about, um, did, change, did writing this book and researching it and focusing so much on deception and the history of deception, did it change you in any way? Did it change your attitude to lying? Did you notice lies a lot more? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, no, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, I approach this sort of as a, as a research project and something that would be very interesting. Um, the, the, the one thing that, that has happened is, you know, I've done radio interviews about this, and every once in a while I get email from people now, and they they want moral advice. You know, and this is quite new for a medieval historian. No one comes to medieval historians for moral advice. And it has got me thinking, though, this kind of goes back to your first question. Um, you know, what does the history of ethics teach us about ethics? Right? What does the history of lying teach us about lying? Not just the history, but you know, what does it teach us about these things today? Uh, and, and, and this is a, a question I'm turning myself towards much more now um, to sort of think about the importance of this kind of historical work for, for thinking about what good ethical behavior would be. And what about the medieval characters? It comes through from your writings. It just seems that medieval people 
in, in worrying about lying much more than the modern person seems to. They seem somehow much more noble than we are. I mean, our, our historian is going to look back at our age and lament the fact that we, we were so worried about breast surgery rather than <laughs> <laughs> telling the truth compared um, to medieval folk that you've researched. You know, well, if they only had the medical technology in the Middle Ages, I'm sure they would have been worrying about other things as well. Um, I don't know if people would go back to the Middle Ages and 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 see them as more noble. Um, the the one thing I have noticed writing this book and and then trying to keep abreast of contemporary conversation about lying is there's never a period in history where people don't think there has been more lying than ever before. So you can read 12th century writers and they just bemoan how the whole world is suffused with the cancer of deception that has sort of reached never before seen, you know, proportions. Then you read someone in the 16th century who says the exact same thing. And if you go to Google today and type in your you know, the Google search box, you know, lying, out of control, you'll find dozens of books and articles all saying there's never been as many liars. You know, lying has never been as big a problem as it is today. So I'm not sure if it's a problem of the people in the Middle Ages being more noble than we are, but rather people always thinking lying has always been one of the great problems of human life. Okay, so I'm afraid I'm going to put you on the spot now, and let us imagine an email comes into you where someone, in a way you've been describing, is caught with a quandary. They've got to go to a job interview. There's a situation coming up where if they lie, it will help them attain their goal. But they're bothered about lying, and they want to know whether they should lie or not. Maybe they're going on a date, a first date, or maybe they've done something bad, and should they confess to their spouse? Is there any advice that would come to you through your research from, from the medieval times onwards as to how to help people decide whether to lie or not? You know, I, there, there is in the sense that there, there's a much sort of defamed group of Catholic thinkers from the 15th and 16th and 17th century called the Casuists. Uh, these were often Jesuit thinkers. And casuists, uh, the name comes from the idea of cases. And the idea was that whenever you're confronted with a moral situation, each, each circumstance, each case is different. And they provided guides and, and sort of lists and tables to sort of help you um, determine what the, what the proper way to respond, you know, to act in any certain case was. Um, and, and so in these sorts of cases, you, know, you have to weigh who are you talking to, what is your position, um, what is it you hope to achieve, uh, and you know, the, the various circumstances, and you would weigh these and, and try to come to some sort of decision given this moment with these particular circumstances, what's the, what's the proper way um, to behave. By and large, I would say, you know, it's always best not to lie. But, you know, you can easily imagine circumstances uh, where you might really need to, not, not for trivial reasons at all, to save someone's life, uh, to keep someone from doing something that would really harm them, right? But these are difficult, difficult moral decisions. And I, I would say that today we're actually not trained to think about them very carefully. 
whereas uh, among the casuists they wrote handbooks after handbooks about how you would how you try to maneuver through these complicated situations so you're saying that you should take it on a case by case basis uh, yeah well i tend to think so you know the there there is a tradition that says kant says this immanuel kant the german philosopher you should never lie right whenever you lie you're treating people as means to some end for yourself you're debasing humanity every time you lie. Um, so there are people who hold these very strict moral standards that are sort of absolutes. One of the things I learned from reading the book is there's this other tradition which is we don't live in a world where moral absolutes really work, right? You can easily imagine yourself in a situation where you might have a moral standard, don't ever lie, but you might have another moral standard which is always act with charity towards other people. You can easily imagine a situation in which those moral imperatives conflict, in which lying might not be charitable. And then you need a way to determine when they conflict, which standard am I going to let go of and which one am I going to hold to? Um, and that's the tradition that I found very interesting in researching the book, that people who understood how deeply, deeply perplexing human life is. You just can't. You just can't live it based on certain absolute moral standards that never change. One of the things that I thought uh, might have changed in the modern era, and I, I'm not sure what you think about this, there's obviously the side of the person who's telling the lie, but there's also the person who's being lied to. And if we think about politicians and the fact they can get away with such brazen lies, there's a sense in which people seem to me to want to be lied to. Um, uh, and what, what about that aspect? I mean, people in a way collaborate with the lies that they're being told. I think I think you're absolutely right, and it's not just politicians. Um, so this is one of the things these Renaissance courtiers were discovering. When when you're at a dinner party and someone you know doesn't think highly of you comes up to you and says, "Oh, Raj, you know, it's it's so nice to see you." I'm, not that this ever happens in your life. It happens in my life, but <laughs> um, you know, you know, they're 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 flattering you, right? You know what they think of you, and yet you're happy to hear it. You'd rather hear that than something else, probably. So, you know, I think in much of our lives, you know, we we know we're getting snowed, <laughs> and we don't necessarily mind it. Uh, and, and that's okay. It helps society, uh, you know, go along, even at the daily level of social interaction. Much, much less are politicians lying to us. And does that come back finally to the title of your book? Because I think the title is fascinating. If you read the book, you understand the meaning in the title. The title is The Devil Wins, A History of Lying from the Garden of Eden to the Enlightenment. So what do you mean by The Devil Wins? Well, it, what it means is... God creates the world, and theologians had this idea that the world should be like God had first created it. It should be like the Garden of Eden, perfect, completely honest, without toil. And in fact, what happens over time is, so the devil lies and the world changes, it becomes a fallen place. And, and what happens over time is theologians, scientists, courtiers, all of these people, as they reflect on the nature of the world, realize, oh, wait a minute. I bet, I bet God meant to create a world in which people lie, <laughs> you know, in, in, in which these sorts of things happen, in which the world was fallen. 
They begin to think the world as it is was the best possible world. So the devil wins in the sense that the world that the devil undoes with his two sentences becomes the world that people think was the one God should have made all along. Great. Well, thank you very much indeed, Alice. Uh, the book is entitled The Devil Wins, A History of Lying from the Garden of Eden to the Enlightenment uh, by Dallas Denery, and it's um, published by Princeton uh, University Press. It's a wonderful read, and it will completely change the way you look at the Bible and the way you look at lying. Dallas, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.